Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined in our founder series by a friend I met at the Claremont Institute, Professor Lucas Morel, to talk about the American problem, to talk about the problem of equality and of rights and of our equal freedom and of the Civil War. Professor Morel has a new book called Lincoln and the American Founding, a wonderful read that explains the politics and the history and the rhetoric and the principles of Lincoln as of the American founding and why they are needful to us today. And so we will go in our conversations both through the political action and principles of Lincoln, his understanding of the Declaration of Independence, of the foundation of America, and why it is a position for all times. And on the other hand, through our own situation and the ways in which rights and equality are endangered today. Professor Morel, it is good to be talking to you again. It's been a while since we chatted. Yes, it was wonderful meeting you. One of the delights of the Publius Fellowship I did at the Claremont Institute was getting to meet you and study with you and talk to you. And so it's good to have you on the podcast. But since it is the first time, please introduce yourself and your work for our audience. Great. Thank you. Uh, wonderful to be with you, Brother Titus. Uh, it's been too long, even though it hasn't been that long, uh, too long since we chatted in Claremont, my, my home, uh, in terms of my collegiate and post-collegiate time at the graduate school there. I'm a professor at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. I've been there for 21 years, taught in Arkansas for five years before that, but grew up in Southern California, as you can tell by my accent. Uh, my work focuses on Abraham Lincoln and the American founding, And also I do some politics and literature. So Ralph Ellison, for example, the great novelist, uh, author of Invisible Man and great cultural critic that some people are just beginning to discover now. And we've got this massive volume of letters that has been released about a few months ago, which also is a mine for his mind. So yeah, I teach here in West Central Virginia. I'm on sabbatical this coming academic year. So in God's providence, I've been spared the transition to virus-challenged pedagogy I'm head of my department, so I'm sympathetic with my colleagues who have to undergo this ordeal, but I'm thankful that I get to take the time to write yet another book, just what we need, another book on Lincoln, which right now is tentatively titled Lincoln, Race, and the Fragile American Republic. I am looking forward to it. It is, strangely enough, a time when we do need to hear more and more about Lincoln, since Lincoln is the greatest American president and, in a way, the defining American He is both an everyman and a great man. He is both uh, a man who rose to high office and a man who sacrificed everything. It's hard to imagine this much public spiritedness. (laughs) And of course, he is also so rare because of the strange wisdom that he had to offer in political speeches. Nobody today would think to look to the speeches of politicians for any kind of intelligence, much less the defining wisdom of the nation, of the greatest modern nation or the greatest enterprise. It's strange, and it's a testament to America. Lincoln did not come from any specific advantage, or as people would say today, privilege. He was not a Virginia planter or from a distinguished family, but he showed what greatness comes out of America and what greatness can be dedicated then to America. And that is also a much-needed example today, since it's becoming hard to persuade people that any man of great ambition or talent would dedicate himself to America. People admire many people, but not politicians and nobody with public spirit. In fact, public spirit is just not something we celebrate people for. So this is the exact time and you're doing the Lord's work. Now, Professor, please tell us about the book, your topics, and how we introduce Lincoln to the great American audience. Great. It's a simple argument. The argument is that the most important things we can learn about Lincoln, he drew from the American founding, what he called our fathers. 
And so in my book are the main topics that you face in looking at the most important things Lincoln says about this country. So a book on Lincoln and the founding, of course, has to talk about founding and in particular founders and the founder of founders for the United States was George Washington. And so I have a chapter, the opening chapter is on what Lincoln drew from George Washington as an example for his generation. Lincoln's generation. And then I turn from a founding person to a founding document. And I actually say that more important than a founder is what they produced in terms of their political thought best encapsulated by the Declaration of Independence. And so it's the longest chapter of the book, and it steps through what I consider the five main ideas, principles that Lincoln pulled from the Declaration and how those shaped the most iconic speeches that he gave as an engaged citizen and as president. So then I move from founding ideals or founding ends and purposes, if you will, to founding means. Uh, What are the structures? What are the levers? What are the mechanisms of self-government? And we find those principally in the Constitution. So what was Lincoln's attitude or opinion of the Constitution? Federalism is an important part of that. Consent is an important part of that. How is it that the American people decided to channel their consent into a form of government that did not have plenary authority over their lives, but divided that authority between state and federal to address their political needs? Uh, Not all of their needs, of course, but the needs that as a community they sought to fulfill. So you can't talk about the Declaration and the Constitution, our ends and means, without talking about the great contradiction that the founders had to address, that Lincoln, of course, had to address, what he called the great behemoth of danger, and that is slavery. So very substantive chapter on Lincoln and slavery. What was his view of the founders' approach to slavery? What did he believe they thought about it? What did they try to do about it? And what did they not do about it? Simply put, Lincoln did not believe they were hypocrites, which is a pretty astounding thing for even me to say out loud to my students. They think it's obvious. It's not even sophisticated to say that they were hypocrites. Lincoln never says that they were hypocrites. I sum it up by saying that Lincoln thought that they were revolutionaries, yet prudent revolutionaries. And we can talk more about that later. So we've got Lincoln in Washington, Lincoln in the Declaration. Uh, We're also talking about Lincoln and Jefferson, of course. Lincoln in the Constitution, Lincoln in the founding compromise over slavery. And then a final chapter, Lincoln and this concept that's been in the news in the last year or two, original intent. Americans probably didn't know a whole lot about that in the last few years, but it came back in, of course, with the considered impeachment of President Trump. And so even liberal law professors were all of a sudden interested in what Alexander Hamilton thought, the Federalist Papers thought, our fathers thought about things like high crimes and misdemeanors and impeachment and just what are these things. And so the founders became important to them when they thought they could marshal the founders on behalf of their own objectives. So a book on Lincoln and the founding, I thought, had to talk about, at least to some extent, what Lincoln thought our attitude towards the past should be. And so that's in in a rough sketch of, of the chapters of my book. And I hasten to add that the book is short on purpose. It is part of Southern Illinois University Press's Concise Lincoln Library series. And so they came out with a list of books that deal with Lincoln and fill in the blank, Lincoln and the United States Colored Troops, USCT, Lincoln and Native Americans, Lincoln and even the environment. 
they actually wanted me to write a book on Lincoln and civil rights. And I thought it was a little, it's just anachronistic to think about Lincoln in that way. Not that he wasn't concerned with civil rights, but I just basically told him, look, that's not what I do. Would you consider a book on Lincoln and the founding? And they said, ooh, what's that? Tell us more. And that's what led to this book that was longer. Uh, and I had to lop off, it was like chopping off limbs. I had to lop off about five, 6,000 words to get it close to the max that they wanted. And between the boards, it's about 125 pages. So it worked out fine. Yes, you're right. It is not a long book and it therefore makes a far more striking impression. I read it in one sitting and I could still keep in mind all of the parts. And I think every reader can understand, as you explained, the structure of the book and its importance, how it moves from the rhetoric to the activity, to the practice of Lincoln as a president and pulls together all of America in this one man's very brief activity. He was president from 61 to 65, and mm -hmm. he was a national figure, perhaps circa 58 already, in his failed bid for the Senate. His brief term in the House did not cover him in glory. His electorate did not see fit to return him. It took a long time for America to recognize Lincoln's greatness. And yet in this very short activity, you see indeed all of these things pulled together how America is dedicated to the Declaration, which defines what politics is for us, how the Constitution is the decisive means and everything has to be thought through in practice in terms of the Constitution, which in turn is understood in terms of the Declaration. And what does that mean in practice, including or especially in the highest moment of crisis? Lincoln's perspective is so interesting because he is born after the revolution and the constitution. He grows up in the West, not in any of the historical colonies. And already Americans are interested in the future, in expansion, and not particularly reverent to the past. <laughs> so his situation is, in fact, very close to ours. His reverence for the past, although shocking today, was not particularly common in his age either. He had to make a great effort to remind people of the great glory of the name of Washington and what it represented. Therefore, Lincoln teaches us that it's not enough to have a past. It is important to revere it, and to revere it is to understand why it is noble and great and what it achieves in justice, and what about it is simply good for human beings. It is only by combining principle and history that we can hold on to our past, or else we can see, as Lincoln saw in his day, and we see in our days, a combination of corrupt elites trying to destroy the system and mobs also trying to do that. The bottom and the top, you know, a strange alliance against the great middle class American Republic. The people are divided and confused because it's not just rioters in the streets or despicable people defacing the great monuments of the Republic. It's also elites saying that actually this is super all right. Yeah. That law and order does not matter, that the equal protection of our rights does not in fact matter, and so on and so forth. And Lincoln himself dealt with this and saw the problem rising even as a young man. You mentioned his first important speech, the Lichome Address, and his fear of great ambitions and new dark passions, and on the other hand, lynch mobs and a lawlessness from top and bottom attacking the great edifice of America. So how did Lincoln think about his situation and what did he think would guide him in his political activity? Yeah, I think you set that up quite well. And those are tremendous and striking parallels to what Lincoln was dealing with and thought was incipient in his era. I mean, today, as you put it, it's not simply one or the other. It's both an attack on American principles, as well as an undermining of certain practices, both of which we have taken for granted and have been the beneficiaries of in our lifetime. I'm 56 years old, but it never occurred to me till now that just thinking about my house and my children and my property 
I happen to be grateful that I don't live in a major city now where that would be a much more palpable threat to wake up to. I live in West Central Virginia in a fairly rural part of Virginia where I know my neighbors, trust them implicitly in getting to know them. I just moved, but getting to know them even better. And I think to myself, my goodness, if you were to live in a place like, you know, just the major cities, we saw Minneapolis, for crying out loud, Minneapolis? Could that be the scene of this performative justice that wants to govern by bullhorn and hostile mobs? Even one of the most woke mayors in the country was the victim of that mob when he courageously answered the woman with the bullhorn who wanted him to say out loud, defund the police. And through his mask, which he had to repeat because she couldn't hear it, said, no, I'm not going to abolish the police. And she told him what he could do with an expletive. She said, get the F out of here. And I tell you, he was lucky to get out of that in one piece. Wow. So yeah, in terms of the practices of self-governing, which is to say selves controlling themselves instead of unleashing these passions, I'm like, whose bullhorn, whose megaphone, whose microphone has authority here? Is it just the person who shows up first? Is it the person who has the bigger crowd? Gee, what was it that Lincoln said? Let us have faith that right makes might, not the other way around. And so I think that this is threatened today. The idea that government by consent of the government doesn't simply mean majority will. It means a majority that regulates its consent through constitutional mechanisms, through time, right? Delaying what you think you want to do. And when you actually decide to do something, that delay, that time is there intentional. It's built in intentionally so that we could make room for reason, not passion to hold sway, as the Federalist Papers puts it. So something as fundamental as informed consent as a free people, right, where our government is owned and operated by us, something like that is being attacked. And yet right now we're invited to glory in the fact that the professed moms with yellow t-shirts are charting the path to our liberty. I'm not so sure. And so Lincoln saw the problem with mobs, saw the problems with people not having patience that the gears of government would actually produce justice. The difficulty, of course, is that the people are not evil per se. The people want justice. That's the whole reason why they're demonstrating and protesting. And even, believe it or not, strangely enough, trying to burn down federal courthouses. The presumption is that they want justice, but the means are highly problematic, shall we say. Lincoln reminds us that in America, the means are as important as the ends. And so what I do in my book is try to show that Lincoln charted this course between those who are the moral absolutists on the one hand who say, you know, let justice be done though the heavens fall, right? That quote from John Quincy Adams. He had to counter the radical immediatist abolitionists, William Lloyd Garrison and his ilk, who are just say, I and God are, are a majority and deal with it, not open to persuasion, not open to conversation, and no respect for consent. This is a guy who burned a copy of the Constitution in public. He has guys on the other side, like Stephen Douglas, who say consent is everything. Forget about ideals, as long as you're white, of course, because he was a outspoken white supremacist. Stephen Douglas was only concerned in the will of the majority and not so concerned about fundamental human equality. And Lincoln was trying to show that equality and consent were two sides of the same coin. That was his reading of the Declaration. And it was what he called the spirit of 76 and what he wed to the Constitution and laws that we had to have reverence for. For him, that was the way uh, to pursue justice. You had to keep both of those in mind. 
Yes, indeed, Americans have to have a political arrangement of their disputes. Americans have to have all these institutions that ennoble all the things that we want to do and at the same time make it possible for people to act together. Our equal liberty, our equal rights, our equal dignity as citizens and as human beings requires that we have institutions that allow all of us to deal with these things. And the requirement for that in turn, of course, is that, as you so well put it, you need to have self-control, you need to govern yourself if you are to be part of government along with everybody else's consent. You cannot force people into things. You cannot make the law by rioting. You cannot burn down things to get what you want. But nevertheless, we see that the resolve to enforce law and order, to protect people's lives and properties, turns out that in those fires set by rioters in Minneapolis, somebody was murdered. Somebody was very, very happy to burn down a shop where somebody was murdered and nobody knows about it. Or they just found the charred remains at some point. That is a horror. And yet we are told to look at these things with compassion as though charred bodies are an accident. You can say whoops over. No, you cannot destroy people's lives and property. Everybody has an equal right to the protection of the laws because all of these things come from before we have any politicians or any laws. There are natural rights. This is why none of us feel that we need to ask the mayor or the governor whether it's okay to have our house or whether maybe it should be burned down. Yeah. No, the mayor and the governor don't decide these things. They are only there to protect things that they have not themselves created. They are not our superiors. If a mayor suddenly doesn't care about your life or your property, that's not his decision to make. He is bound by law as we all are. Yeah, Lincoln has this great quote about property being the fruit of labor. He considers it a positive good in the world. And then he says, let not him who is houseless pull down the house of another, but let him labor diligently and build one for himself, thus by example, assuring that his own shall be safe from violence when built. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. made the same point when he said that the whole reason why we need to be marching and protesting is for the sake of laws that we do not receive the equal protection of. He understood that the great criticism of his own civil disobedience strategy was precisely the criticism that said, hey, look, you complained when Southerners were not abiding by the Brown v. Board of Education decision, which desegregated public schools. Now you get to choose which laws you want to obey King. What's up with that? And King acknowledged that that was a legitimate, for him at least, plausible criticism because it was precisely the equal protection of the laws that Blacks were denied. And so how could they be disobeying laws when at the end of the day they needed every Everybody to obey the laws equally so that blacks as well as whites could enjoy the fruits of their labor, pursue their happiness, etc. And so, you know, you read the letter from Birmingham jail and he tries to answer that objection, but he understood that as probably the strongest criticism of at least the civil disobedience part of his nonviolent protest movement. Yes, indeed. And as you said, in times when rights or claims of justice become incredibly angry or run by passion, we are all too capable of losing sight of the law and of our habits of obedience to the laws. And this can create very dangerous habits. It means that the law will only apply to those who tolerate it and those who will do violence against it, get away with it. These things gradually stir up hatred. These things gradually make people feel in a way maybe even ashamed to obey the laws because it makes them look like suckers. This does not lead to anything good, but it is a danger since the application of the laws, the enforcement of our equal claims is not always there. Human affairs simply cannot be perfect and in dangerous times people are tempted by corruption. And so it is not enough even to leave it at law. We have to understand the principles of these laws. We have to understand the American foundation up to the Constitution in the Declaration. Because if we do not have that understanding of our own nature, 
our natural rights means that we understand our own nature enough to realize that we have certain rights and that political circumstances or trying times cannot steal our minds, our own understanding. Imperfect situations or crises can force us into bad things, but if we had any choice, we would instead choose to follow our nature and establish our rights. This is now in danger again, as it was in the run-up to the Civil War. So again, it is necessary for us to turn to the Declaration and to the definition of our nature and rights. Yeah, and I like you directing this conversation towards a discussion of the Declaration. It's not a merely antiquarian or nostalgic exercise that we're engaging in when we talk about our past and our peculiar American past. It wasn't only Lincoln who was, if you will, obsessed or consumed by a proper or right understanding of the Declaration. That's what was precisely being debated in Lincoln's time. Lincoln was countering other interpretations of our past. So Stephen Douglas, which he believed was the most insidious, and that was his word. He didn't throw strong words around like that too frequently, but he called Stephen Douglas in 1858 the most insidious threat to liberty. Notice, not somebody who was an outright, outspoken defender of slavery, but someone who was preaching to whites in the North that they should not care, that they should be indifferent to what happens to people who do not look like them in another state or more particularly in another territory. Lincoln said he is the most insidious threat precisely because he is teaching folks to be indifferent and that is all that will be necessary for slavery to become national. Stephen Douglas's account of the founding differed from Lincoln's and so Lincoln pushed him on that. Lincoln tested Douglas and said, let's take a look at the fathers. You claim that they are smarter on this issue than us. Great. Let's look at that. Let's compare your understanding of the founding with my understanding. The good news is for him, both Douglas and Lincoln revered the founders. They just disagreed on what the founders meant. You have a guy like Alexander Stevens, who becomes the vice president of the Confederacy in his most famous speech now, what we call the cornerstone speech which he delivered in the year that Lincoln became president, Stevens has a remarkably Lincolnian understanding of the founding, both what they believed about equality, the fact that they believed it, and what they were unable in Stevens's mind to do about slavery. It's very Lincolnian. I don't think Lincoln could improve on it. The only problem is at the end of that paragraph, Stevens says, and they were wrong. <laughs> so here you got Stevens who actually agrees with Lincoln about what the founders intended, but he disagrees with Lincoln in terms of whether we should follow them or not. Stevens says, no, the Confederate States of America is a break with the past. Our constitution is better precisely because the cornerstone is not slavery. It is racial slavery. It is white supremacy. And that, of course, Lincoln disagreed with. So what it is that we believe about our past has real world consequences. And no surprise, as you mentioned earlier, the elites right now that are trumpeting you know, projects like the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones and others who are attacking the founding by claiming that there is something equally as important or more important that goes down to our DNA, as she puts it racism, white supremacy, that that is a fundamental part of our past, Lincoln would emphatically disagree with. And I think that there are voices today that are trying to raise alarm about this reinterpretation of the founders, this reframing of how we are to understand men like George Washington, Jefferson, slaveholders, both Madison as well. And also, of course, you know, as I put it in other places, to take down the founding, you have to take down their greatest defender, which is Abraham Lincoln. So it's not a coincidence that the attacks on Washington are now attacks on Abraham Lincoln as well. Yeah, it started with the Emancipation Memorial in Washington, D.C. 
Yes. That's apparently under threat that is no longer acceptable, even though it is the greatest triumph of morality in politics in America. And so these things will indeed spread unless they are countered. And as you rightly put it, whenever a great conflict arises in American politics, all the parties recur to the origins and they debate those origins again. Were the founders right? What did they mean? We now again indeed face this elite attack on our heritage. The New York Times, the most prestigious paper in the world, and the Pulitzer Committee, the most prestigious award in journalism, in writing, in letters in America, are applauding the 1619 Project, this tissue of lies. The stupider and the more shameless it gets, the more powerful it gets. It will not be enough to say, well, the historical scholarship is shoddy, because that doesn't stop the New York Times from publishing it or the Pulitzer Committee from rewarding it. The more they know it's a lie, the better they like it, because it is brazen, because it is shameless, because it shows utter indifference to the origin of the laws. And if you want to destroy the system, that is the attitude you need. And if you do not wish to destroy the system of laws and beliefs that we have, then you need the opposite of that attitude. You need a certain reverence for the past, and that means understanding why it was great, why great things were done by great men. Otherwise, there are people all the time. Why should these people be more important than others? It's for what they've given us. To understand them is to be grateful to them. And Lincoln, a man who knew his greatness, although he never boasted, was very grateful. And he talked in glowing terms about the founders, about Washington and Jefferson and even Madison occasionally. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we need to do all over again. But indeed, to get to that understanding and to that reverence and that gratitude, to see the great things that we have been given, that we also need to defend. Our gratitude should not make us lazy, it should make us active, since, as we see, Everything is under threat all over again. Yeah. I, to understand that, we have to deal with the slavery problem. Yeah, I think it's a great point to make there, a great observation that at least in the case of Lincoln's conservatism, he was also liberal, but in the case of Lincoln's conservatism, what he was trying to conserve was something that you could actually understand. Again, it wasn't simply that which is near should be dear to us. It's not simply because one descended from the founders, and of course, that's a remarkably smaller and smaller portion of our population, but it was because that past was understandable and clearly understood should lead one to see that we don't revere it or follow it simply because it was first, simply because it's old or came before we did. Uh, it's kind of like a squatter's rights approach to how we should govern ourselves. It's in understanding the past that we recognize, as you put it, what is good and true and noble about it, and therefore what we should be grateful for. Not everything in our past is worth holding on to. And of course, slavery is the obvious example of that. There are those who wanted to hold on to it. There are those who were indifferent about it. And then there's Lincoln who says, no, even if we couldn't do everything right away about it at the time of the founding, or even in his time in the 1850s or 60s, that doesn't mean we should forget that these things are wrong and should treat them as wrong politically to be sure that we are constrained in how we deal with them as a wrong, but we must always hold it in our sights that these things are wrong. They are contradictions to our republic and that ultimately they have to, as he put it, be put on the course of ultimate extinction. And so, yeah, I talk about in my book, the ways in which Lincoln challenged what he called the spirit of Nebraska, which is the Kansas-Nebraska Act of Stephen Douglas, popular sovereignty, which was indifferent about the introduction of black slavery into Kansas and Nebraska territories. I talk about how he countered that that spirit of Nebraska with the spirit of 76, as he understood it, trying to reclaim, or as he put it, rescue what he believed was the central principle of the regime, which was human equality. 
uh, not equality among whites, but equality among all human beings. And he thought that if we were successful in doing this, we would not succeed over time in liberating ourselves only. It would be a way of liberating the world. He had a very philanthropic sense of America's success. He constantly pointed out that if we do this right, and it's a difficult thing to transmit generation over generation, something he thought about his entire public career. But if we do this right, that is the best gift we could give other countries hope that the principles we adopted as a people were principles that actually applied to them. They were universal, they were transcendent, they were timeless. Yes, Lincoln was dead serious in his political activity precisely because he had the conviction of natural rights, which is as obvious as our everyday experience and is also in his rhetoric guaranteed by references to the Bible. Americans turned to the Bible for moral guidance, and although that's not quite today what it was then, nevertheless, it is broadly understood and accepted as the ground of moral principle. All men are created by God in God's image, and over human beings are special. You cannot treat human beings as though they were beasts. No human being should ever have his dignity destroyed by this sort of despotism. That is our equality, our equal freedom. And indeed, you quote Lincoln saying presciently, as it turned out right before his inauguration, that he would rather be assassinated on the spot than to surrender this principle. There is a connection between this moral conviction and his political activity, and we can hope that if we understand it, likewise, we will be moved, likewise, to public spirit, to realize that we have to defend these rights for each other because they are our nature, and therefore they should ground our politics as well. Yeah, I think the good news today is even if the Bible does not have as strong a hold over the country as it did in Lincoln's day, but I'll have to issue a caveat there because as he points out in the second inaugural, for a generation that was beholden to the Bible, they still did not draw the same conclusion with regards to the great behemoth of danger, which was racial slavery. Strangely enough, Christians across the country, as he puts it, right, read the same Bible and pray to the same God, but they drew different and opposing conclusions about the justice of slavery. And so even having an almost uniform religious understanding of the world, that generation was incapable of peacefully solving the problem of slavery. The Bible didn't help at that point, and Lincoln pointed that out, and still enlisted the Bible in the Second Inaugural, both Old and New Testament, to make his point. But the good news today is even though it's hard to say that we are at least culturally a Christian country anymore, there is a notion that is well nigh universal, leaving out the extremes, in this thing called human dignity. If you press people why humans are dignified or we should treat everybody equal, they'll have a harder time explaining that away from talking about these things from God's perspective, as it were, the creator. But the fact that people at least still believe that all men are not created equal, they're equally dignified or have equal dignity for some reason, right? Black lives matter, all lives matter, that sort of thing. That is at least some basis, not the strongest basis, but some basis upon which we can, I think, reclaim a surer ground for our freedom and for the mechanisms to secure that freedom over time. So there is some hope. But even Lincoln, who was not a conventional Christian or an orthodox Christian, if you will, understood and drew a lot from his reading of the Bible. I got to mention this one quote that is not cited very often. In 1858, he was referring to the founders and their understanding of human equality in spite of the fact that they didn't get rid of slavery right away. He said that this was their majestic interpretation of the economy of the universe. And then this great line, he says, the justice of the creator to his creatures, to the whole great family of man, in their enlightened belief, nothing stamped with the divine image and likeness was sent into the world to be trodden on and degraded and imbruted 
by its fellows. So this concept of the imago dei was one that Lincoln took to heart. And I think today, the secular translation of that is the concern for human dignity. So I think that there is some hope (laughs) there, but it needs to be shored up. Yes, indeed, we have to figure out what it is that is dignified, what the relationship of that dignity to politics is, because otherwise we are in danger of saying that we can only prove the dignity of groups whose dignity has been denied previously or impaired by destroying the dignity of others. Lincoln insists again and again, and indeed this is part of his liberalism, his dedication to natural rights, that everyone that the black woman or the black man in his various species have the right to the bread they earn by the sweat of their labor. It doesn't matter if all people are the same or like each other enough. What matters is that nobody has the right to be a tyrant to other people. Every man has government over himself, but not also over others despotically. Right. To govern others only with consent. Yes. And this is simply a danger of human nature. In America, we are primarily focused on the racial problem, on the fact that whites oppressed blacks in several ways, slavery above all, but segregation or other things. But to destroy somebody else's rights does not require that he have a different color or be part of a different race or even be thought of that way. All it requires is this tyrannic desire to rule other people without their consent, to prove that you are superior by making other people inferior. So it is that we see, as I said, this very worrying tendency nowadays, not just in mobs, not just in riots, not just when people lose their minds, but in very calculated ways, in very sophisticated and argued ways, our elites are trying to destroy the rights of more and more citizens and are introducing, again, ways of throwing away dignity. The talk of systemic racism and of white privilege and of white supremacy in the period in American history when whites are not oppressing anybody anymore, these people are not talking about 1800 or 1820 or 1860. There was white supremacy, and everybody who studies a bit of history knows what it looked like. But this is not 1860, it's 2020. And to speak of these things now is to corrupt the legacy of American civil rights and of the great struggle for political equality, for equal rights, and instead to destroy the dignity of people who can be humiliated. That is a great danger because it is part of human nature now and then for dark passions to arise. And if they can be organized as our elites have managed to organize them, it has become possible to try to destroy the rights and the property of certain people. It is now practiced with a casual cruelty and a mindless pleasure to threaten the lives, the property, the jobs, the reputation of all sorts of people because they are white and so it is possible to practice against them with the full semblance of morality. To destroy these people's lives, to throw Twitter mobs at people, get them fired, is apparently a very moral thing to do. It asserts the dignity of some groups if some elites and mobs can destroy the dignity of other people. And, you know, the elites who destroy poor white people or endangered white people are also white. This is not a racial matter, but it is despotism. It is an attack on the natural rights to property, to speech, to express your opinions, to have the security of your life and possessions. All of these things are under attack, and there's not enough defense of them. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I have reintroduced into my course, Race Inequality, a book by Stokely Carmichael, also known as Kwame Ture, and Charles Hamilton. They wrote a book in 1967 called Black Power. They were, if you will, the godchildren of Malcolm X. And all the talk today of, you know, whites as allies, suspicion of coalitions, 
suspicion of, in fact, the very words that we use and who gets to define those words. In the defining, you get to control, as we say today, the narrative, the story. But even systemic, what goes by that phrase, systemic racism, this can all be traced back to black power. You know, the suspicion of capitalism, which now is equated with, not infected by, but equated with white supremacy, right? To be capitalist is to be white supremacist now. All of this can be traced to this book, Black Power. I had not taught it for a long time because I didn't think it was that sophisticated or intellectually robust, but it is the playbook for Black Lives Matter. And so I have my students read it, and then we go to the Black Lives Matter website and think through what it is that BLM and the Movement for Black Lives is promoting today and their means of promoting it. Let's examine their rhetoric. I mean, my course on race and equality is a course on rhetoric. We look at, if you will, the greatest hits of Black American social and political thought throughout our history, and we see the great diversity in that Black political thought. We read Frederick Douglass, but we also read Martin Delaney. We read X, we read King. We read Du Bois, we read Washington. We read, you know, Marcus Garvey. We read a whole host of influential folks on American soil. Garvey was obviously a Jamaican who came to the United States after World War One. I have my students look through this so that they have some historical framework by which they can look at and observe what's going on in front of them and to realize the implications of it, right? So if you say that racism isn't an individual matter anymore, Carmichael and Hamilton said, no, 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 racism now will not be a matter of individual racists, although they, of course, still think that they exist, as do I. But if you say racism is systemic, then obviously, what's the solution? Not reform, but revolution, right? If it's in the system, or as Nicole Hannah-Jones says, it's in our DNA, we have to have some sort of political CRISPR to try to redo it or reshape or transform it. You, it this isn't a matter of changing laws. You've got to change structures. And they're not shy about that. And so how do you change those structures? You show that those structures are part and parcel of ideas that are false. And so Nicole Hannah-Jones, to her credit, tries to save the declaration, but she's speaking out of both sides of her mouth. She thinks that the declaration is only relevant because Black people made it relevant. And what for me is so insidious and subversive about her essay and her project is what it does, what it teaches even whites today especially as it makes its way into K through 12 curriculum, it teaches them not to trust white people and to do this by overlooking the tremendous goodwill of whites throughout our American history, a goodwill without which no black agency would have created the Civil Rights Act of 64 or 65, the Brown v. Board of Education decision, 9-0 unanimous court opinion where there were white justices. How is that conceivable if racism, color prejudice is in our DNA? You know, the 13th Amendment, right? No black congressman when that was passed and ratified. How is the Emancipation Proclamation possible? So the thing that we take for granted, because it's so manifestly obvious that this country is a majority white country for most of its history, the thing we take for granted is precisely the thing that was necessary historically. If you get the history right, it was necessary for all of these gains. It wasn't only exclusively a white project to do right by blacks. It was, as King put it, right, black and white together, as the button on his lapel put it, black and white together. And that is studiously avoided and ignored and deliberately omitted by Nicole Hannah-Jones in her attempt to give us an alternative history, an alternative reading, which is you know, radically reductionist in his thinking that in order to promote a greater appreciation and understanding of black contribution to their own liberation, which is definitely there and had for the longest time was ignored by our historians, 
in order to do that, she thinks it's a zero-sum game. She thinks that to promote Black contribution to progress in civil rights in this country, she has to take down the iconic proponents of equality, like Jefferson, yes, a slaveholder, like Lincoln, etc., Yes, you're right. There is a kind of strange contest organized between people who, from another truer point of view, were working for a similar purpose, since they were all animated by the father of all moral principle, as Lincoln puts it, the equal dignity of all human beings, since that's what our natural rights are. We all have the same natural rights. And now even that is denied. And instead of having, as you say, from MLK, black and white together, it can only be, you know, some liberal whites and some uh, activist blacks against other people, mostly whites who are not so famous or rich. The fact that elites have gotten to the point where they are continuously talking about systemic racism, white supremacy, white fragility, this entire language promulgated by elites is aimed in part to humiliate people who up until the day before yesterday thought that America was kind of an all right place, not uh, without its injustices, not without uh, the human drama, nothing is ever all that perfect, but certainly not any kind of white supremacy. And now they are being humiliated. But worse, it is intended to make elites and aspirants to elites shameless, to deny and destroy the memory of the American history and of the great struggle to get to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, to get to the Civil War and the sacrifice of Lincoln and of seven, eight hundred, maybe more thousand Americans, white and black, in the Civil War. All of that has to be thrown out or humiliated. You know, you don't know whether amnesia or humiliation is a worse way to treat the national memory. But all of these things are now practiced in order to justify the fact that elites would like to take away from normal people their rights. Whether people will tolerate that, who knows? Because this is America, you have to stand up for your rights. People have to organize and politically, constitutionally pursue the vindication of their rights. Lincoln found it in his time an uphill struggle. His career is to be studied because he came from so little, from nothing, so to speak, and became president. And that requires great political judgment. That political judgment was animated by the principles we have been discussing here. But of course, that political judgment in itself requires study. Since again, it turns out that look at cities burning on the news, all sorts of outrages being committed, and nobody knows anything to do about it. Most of us feel powerless, and whoever is in office is apparently hiding. All of these politicians, all of these supposedly patriotic people who have those pins with the flag on their lapels, none of them apparently want to enforce the laws. None of them want to actually defend the citizens. Whatever happened to equal protection of the laws? Well, a lot of people found out that they have no protection and that their lives can be destroyed with impunity. That's a very dangerous thing to do. That is a very dangerous thing to allow. That is a very dangerous precedent to set. And it is time for people to learn, like Lincoln, that America has a great heritage, but it is in need of defense. That without the right public spiritedness and the ambitions guided by the Declaration, this cannot long last. It is not of its own power perpetual. Lincoln was such a serious man to look to the Declaration, to look to the Bible, to look to all American resources, because he realized that after one lifetime, America was falling apart to the point where people murdered each other like monsters. We have to get back to normality, decent respect for each other, and that will require again an action to unite the country. My hope is that my book, which is principally a work of political theory, although I hope that doesn't kill its sales, but the, the fact that I just said that, 
it is not just a work of political theory because I'm looking in the past at Lincoln, who's looking further to the past, the founding. It's also a work of history. The hope is that in the history I tell and the principles that I elucidate, I hope faithfully to Lincoln, who I believe faithfully recounted what the founders thought, my hope is it will be a form of civic education. My hope is that in the end, they'll say, wow, to know Lincoln is to know the founding and to know the founding is to know myself and my country and humanity better, is to know it in a way that I would not know if I were to read just the New York Times or the Washington Post, for example, is to know my neighbor and to know what I must respect in my neighbor. And I hope that the book in leading us to the past will be able to recover a way of thinking about each other, speaking about each other, and therefore acting as properly self-governing citizens. I think Lincoln's rhetoric, the founder's rhetoric, actually gives us a way of recognizing what is the same about each of us. We talk about class, we talk about race, we talk about sex. We don't talk enough about the things that we share, the things that are fundamental, that are profoundly the same about us, you know, our, as you put it, our equal possession of rights by nature, not rights because of, you know, government favoritism and, or I just happen to be in the majority. I hope my book in directing us to Lincoln and the founders in a respectful way or a way that we will find that we can respect them and not tear down their monuments. I'm hoping that we can recover all ways of thinking, speaking, a rhetoric that can cross the political divide and presumably enable us to be one country, one people. This coming election, already we've got both sides claiming if they lose, it must have been a stolen election. I mean, that does not bode well for us. How is it that we can restore our faith in each other so that our institutions can be things that we have faith in, trust in, and be the equal beneficiaries of? I'm hoping my book, in a small way, can make that contribution. Yes, indeed. It is civic education that we need, and it's hard to imagine how it could be done better than this. The man who, like me, has long studied the founders, just like, I think, uh, somebody who is for the first time really turning to the study, perhaps because he's worried about why are these men's statues being destroyed. Everyone can learn from this book. There is history in it, there is philosophy in it, there is rhetoric in it, there are all the things that were part of the life and the thought and the activity of Lincoln and of all other Americans. He is the greatest American but he is un-American. Other people can also share in these things, and I think we all can take great encouragement and guidance from this. We need self-government. We need to understand our own problem to be moderate personally and our national problem to pursue justice. At this point, it's sad but true that America is a confused nation, that the great majority is not feeling confident or unified, and a small number of radicals, by definition, very few people are elite, are either abandoning their duties or actively trying to destroy institutions and beliefs. But this is not America. This is not most Americans, not by a country mile. But then how can the great American nation be united? It is indeed civic education, and your book is a contribution I am grateful for. It was a pleasure to interview you, and I have to take, of course, the chance again to recommend to our audience. Just hop on Amazon or wherever you go buy your books and look up Lucas Morel, Lincoln and the American Founding. And, of course, all the other works of Professor Morel, I am especially partial to Ralph Ellison. Please go read this, share it with people. Let us pursue this work of civic education if our political actions are to be more moderate and just. Thanks a lot, Professor. It was Thanks. Talking again. Great. Wonderful. Um, you should write on this. Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. And I will be writing something. And of course, good luck with your new book. And indeed, uh, providentially, you are on sabbatical and can dedicate yourself to this civic education task. Wonderful. Thanks, Brother T. All the best, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 